0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 12. Job chapter 12. We're going to be looking at several passages in Job. So everybody needs a Bible, and these brothers have some. As they make their way to the back, if you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll get one of those Bibles to you. That's us mark that Job chapter 12 for you. Job 12. Ray Donovan served as the Secretary of Labor in President Ronald Reagan's first term. In September of 1984, he became the first cabinet secretary to be indicted while in office. His indictment included 137 counts of criminal wrongdoing related to an alleged scheme to defraud a local municipality of several million dollars, during Donovan's work in the private sector before he had entered government. Six months after the indictment, he resigned his post as Secretary of Labor Labor, and gave his attention to his defense in court. In May of 1987, after two years of legal procedure that included dozens of witnesses, 558 exhibits, involving an estimated 50,000 pages of documents and 32 court-ordered wiretap tapes, the judge in the case reduced the number of charges from 137 to 10. That was an ominous sign for the prosecution. A month later, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty on all counts. Outside the courtroom, Donovan asked a question before the assembled press that's been quoted many times since. He asked, to which office do I go now to get my reputation back? Now, you know, even though thankfully we live under a legal system in which one is innocent until proven guilty, I have to admit that most often when I see someone charged like that, 137 counts worth. I initially pronounced them guilty in my own mind. I think there's got to have been some wrongdoing. And I'm surprised when they're found not guilty. But these are people that I don't know. I didn't know Ray Donovan. I don't know their character. And therefore, I only have what the press is reporting and what looks bad at the moment. I've never had someone that I personally know in such a predicament. In Ray Donovan's case, though, those who knew him never believed that he was guilty. It turns out Donovan had gone to seminary for religious training. And those who knew him believed him to be impeccably honest. President Reagan issued a statement after that not guilty verdict and said, I've always known Ray Donovan as a man of integrity. And I'm happy to see this verdict. I've never lost confidence in him. His family stood by him through that two-and-a-half-year ordeal. And as the verdicts were read, his wife clutched a friend's hand and she sobbed. Now, Over the last ten weeks, we've been studying the book of Job. And in the book of Job, we have portrayed for us the trials of a man who experienced unimaginable pain. The loss of his family, the loss of his possessions, the loss of his own health. And all of that in very short order. But while it is true that in the book of Job, Job is being tried, the one who is really on trial is not Job, but rather God. And it starts in the opening chapter when Satan asks the question of God, does Job fear God for nothing? And then Satan predicts, you have blessed the work of Job's hands, but strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, as I said in the third message in this series, Satan claims to God that Job loves the gifts more than the giver. And God, if you take away the gifts, he will abandon his faith in you. God says, Satan, you need to understand you're really not all that. What's on trial is really whether God is all that he claims to be. Is he worth being served even when things are not good in the life of the servant? And Job's three friends come to him in his suffering and they present their view of God. And their view of God is that he operates rigidly according to a formula. As we've seen, they believe in something called the retribution principle. And it says if you're good, then things will go well with you. And if you're bad, then things will be bad for you. And Things were going bad for Job. And so they tell Job that God is simply doing what God must. He's retributing you, Job. He's rewarding you according to what you deserve. Now, in saying this, they're certainly saying something about Job. But they're also saying something very important about God, that God acts always according to this impersonal principle, and he's really robotic, robotic in its implementation. But Job knows a couple of things that they don't. Job knows himself. Job knows that, contrary to all of their speculation, which goes on for chapters in the book of Job, he knows he's not done anything that would deserve this calamity according to the retribution principle. And most importantly, what Job knows that they apparently do not is that Job knows God. Job simply cannot believe this about God, that God is like a machine, that God's like a computer into which you... What you put in determines what you get out. Now, in the case of Ray Donovan, those who knew him had a different view of the man than those who did not. And in the case of Job and his friends, Job knows God better than they do. And it's precisely because of what he believes about God that he's so confused and he's so frustrated at what's happening to him. Then the back and forth between Job and his friends, which takes place in this book of 42 chapters, but it takes place in three cycles. Job will speak and then one of the friends and then Job replies and then another of the friends and then Job responds. And this cycle goes on three times, chapters three through 14. Then it starts over again in chapters 15 to 21 and then again, chapters 22 to 27. Then in chapter 28, there's an interlude about wisdom. Job gives his final remarks. And then uh, a man named Elihu, a, a fifth character, comes and speaks. But in all of that, between Job and these other four, they're presenting two different views of God. And it's really what God is like that is at stake in the story. After all the talk of these four men and then this fifth that enters the scene and speaks for five chapters in chapters 33 to 37, and they all say essentially the same thing, do these friends, and after all of that, God himself speaks, and in the last chapter of the book, God says, God says to Eliphaz, he was the main spokesman of the original three friends who came, and so he He says to Eliphaz, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth. Now notice this, you have not spoken the truth about me. Yes, they've not spoken the truth about God. But most important, they've not spoken the truth. Uh, They've not spoken the truth about Job, but most important, they haven't about God. And God goes on in that verse to add something else. He says... I am angry with you, Eliphaz, and your two friends, because you have not spoken what is true about me. But then, God adds, as my servant Job has. Throughout all of this dialogue, what you have said about me is not accurate. And yet much of what Job has said is indeed accurate. Now, some of you know the name Michael Card. He's a Christian singer and songwriter. He recorded a song about the book of Job that covers, that covers the entire story. The song is a full 10 minutes long. At one point in the song, Job is speaking to the Lord and says, These friends of mine are no comfort to me. So deftly they listen. So blindly they see. Their words and their doctrine, they all sound so true. The problem is, Lord, they're all wrong about you. He captured that. That in everything they were saying, yes, they were throwing barbs at Job, but really they were saying something about God, and you're wrong about God. Friends, when we're perplexed about what God is allowing in our lives, when we're prone to ask questions about what God is doing, and even about the character of God himself, We ask things like, why is God doing this or why doesn't he intervene or what did I do to earn this? In all of those questions, explicitly or implicitly, we are questioning what God is like. And today I want to survey what Job understood about what God is like. And also see what other portions of the word of God tell us regarding God's character and God's purposes. So that each of us can solidify what we believe about God. Now hear this before the questions come. The best time to prepare for what's to come is before it arrives. Prepare for what do I believe about God? But if you're in the midst of some difficulty that you don't understand. Then to have these questions to help you in what you're experiencing now. And so let's pray together and ask God to help us. Father, we're here in your presence with your word open. Lord, we ask you to open our hearts. We ask you to give us clear minds as we focus on these truths that are not just ancient truths about something that happened to a man millennia ago. These are truths about you and you do not change. And Lord, we are interacting with you every moment of every day in all that's happening in our lives. And so grant us, Lord, to give attention. Grant us the willingness to make application of what you say about yourself so that we can carry this now forth into the next week and month and years of our lives into the various circumstances that our sovereign God allows to come for our good and for his glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now every week we have a an outline that's inserted in your program so that you can follow along with what we're saying in the message and if you don't have that out as yet then please take that out. And I have four things there that we want to look at from the the book of Job. The first is this. That God is in control even when life is chaotic. God is in control even when life is chaotic. Now, I've asked you to turn to chapter 12 because there Job declares his belief in the sovereignty of God. That is God's complete control over all that happens in his world. Even all these lousy things that have happened in Job's life. In verse 13 of chapter 12, Job says to God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Those he imprisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is a drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and insight. Both deceived and deceiver are his. He leads rulers away, stripped, and makes fools of judges. He takes off the shackles put on by kings and ties a loincloth around their waist. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows officials long established. And on it goes throughout that chapter as Job proclaims his confidence in the sovereignty, the control of God. Tim Chester in his book, You Can Change, has a subchapter titled, God is great. So you don't have to be in control. And in reminding of God's greatness, he says, traveling at the speed of light, that is 186,000 miles a second, you could encircle the earth seven times in one second and pass the moon in two seconds. At this speed, it would take you 4.3 years to reach our nearest star and 100,000 years to cross just our galaxy. There are thought to be a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. It would take two million light years to reach the next closest galaxy and 20 million to reach the next cluster of galaxies. And you still only just have begun to explore the universe. And all of this was created by our God when he simply spoke a word. In fact, Isaiah tells us that he marked off the heavens with the breadth of his hand. It's a spatial metaphor for a God who exists outside of space, but it gives us a sense of the scale of God. The whole universe fits into his hand, as it were. If you hold your hand up, the universe is that big to God. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says Jesus sustains it all by the power of his word. The Bible says he, quote, works all things according to the counsel of his will. And in a mysterious way, that involves human freedom. God orders every event and determines every action. Proverbs says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And even evil actions are part of his plan. The conspiracy that sent Jesus to the cross was the result of evil choices by human beings. And yet the Bible says, quote, they did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. From the movement of atoms to the complexities of human history, God sustains and rules all. Now, that's out there. That's the vastness of the universe. That's all that God is doing in this universe. It's amazing to ponder. But now bring that down just to the mundane, everyday life that you and I live. Have you ever lost work on a computer because it crashed? Tim Chester says it happened to him one day. And he let out a loud, no! He said he lets out that no and his head hits the desk. But then he asked the question, to whom was I speaking? <laughs> the reality is, though he says he might not have admitted it, he was crying out no to God and his sovereignty. He says, I was rejecting his sovereign rule over my life. No, God, you don't know best. Your rule is not good. Otherwise, you would not let this happen. Now you think about the things that have gone on or are going on in your life where you have cried out no. God, you don't know what's best. And you're crying out no, even if you're not saying the words, you're crying out no in the way you're reacting to what's happening in your life. God doesn't know what's best. And that's why I choose to be miserable rather than joyful, as the Bible says we can be. Not happy, (laughs) but having that abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life despite the circumstances. Friends, you and I are living a Latin phrase, "corum Deo, in the presence of God, all the time and in every circumstance. Our experience of and our reactions to what happens to us is directly related to what we believe about God. We are always in relation to God, always. Whether in positive relation or negative But our knowledge of him and the prominence of him in our thinking may be way in the background. Do you hear what I'm saying? I don't care who you are. You are always living in the presence of God. And whether you acknowledge that or not, God is still there. God is maybe in the recesses of your mind, but you are a creature made by the creator and you live in his presence and before him. And you know that in your heart of hearts, even if you've buried it very deeply. And that's why for many of you, you're angry at God. You may never mouth the words, I'm angry at God. But are you an angry person? Are you angry at what's happened to you? Are you angry at the way your life has gone? Hear this. When you're angry at the circumstances, you are ultimately angry at the God of those circumstances. Chester says, Gives a number of examples, everyday life. Alan is sitting on the train. Inexplicably, it's stopped just outside the station. He's getting angry because it looks as if he's going to miss his hospital appointment. Beth is stressed. Replacing the family car has wiped out their savings. Now she's worried that they won't have enough money at the end of the month. When her husband comes home with an expensive-looking bunch of flowers to cheer her up, she bursts into tears. Colin's getting very frustrated. He's trying to get a new community project going, but everything is going wrong. As a result, he's getting irritable with his children. Dorothy is lying awake at night thinking about her friend Eileen. Eileen seems to be slipping into postnatal depression. Dorothy's looked after Eileen's baby a couple of times, but she has her own responsibilities. She wishes she could do more. Just a few, just a handful of every day. Examples of the kind of stress and anxiety that are in our lives and that we bring into our lives because we don't bring God to the fore and remember that God is in control even when life is chaotic. You remember Jesus spoke the words when he walked the earth. We looked at this Wednesday night in the class that I'm doing on Wednesday nights. But when Jesus walked the earth, he spoke the words... The very hairs of your head are all numbered. (laughs) Now, you look at that and you think, oh, how many hairs do I have? You know, how hard is that? If you're bald, it's not that hard. And we just think of it as God's brain is just like this massive computer that can just store everything. So that's what that verse means. When Jesus says, we think, that the very hairs of your head are numbered, he can just store all this information. Oh, no, no, no. The context of that is the verse just before it. In the verse just before it, Jesus says this, Not even a sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do you hear what's being said there? A bird doesn't die except it be by the will of your Father in heaven. And further, not a hair comes out of your head except it be by the will of your Father. Every last thing that happens in our lives. God is actively involved. And so this is not random. It is not chaotic. There is nothing that is random or chaotic in God's universe. There's not a maverick molecule in the universe. Not one. They are all under God's control. God is in control even when things seem random. When life is chaotic. And secondly. God is just, even when you've been wronged. And Job has a better view of God than his friends do. As you read Job's replies to them, which increasingly, as you go through those cycles of them talking and then Job responding, increasingly what you find is Job dismissing these guys. (laughs) They are a one-string banjo. They're saying the same thing over and over again. Job, somehow, they say it in other words, but Job, you deserve this. You're getting what you deserve. This is the retribution principle. you You reap what you sow. That's what they're saying. And so at first, at length, Job responds to them. But as you go on, you notice he'll say something in response to them, but then he moves immediately to God. And he talks about God or he talks directly to God in his speeches. And so in chapter, in chapter 9, if you can just flip back to chapter 9. In verse 33. Chapter 9 and verse 33. If only there were someone to mediate between us. Well, between who? <laughs> Not between me and the friends. Between me and God. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. I don't believe about God what you guys are saying. I believe that God is just, that God does justice. So I, I desire an audience with God. I want to speak with God about this. I simply can't conclude what you all have concluded, that I'm just reaping what I've sown. Now if you'll flip over a few more pages to chapter 13. He says a similar thing. In verse 3, I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. Verse 22 of that chapter. He says to God, summon me and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. He, he just within him is welling up this desire that says, I know, God, that you are not what they say. I know that you are just and yet justice is not being done here. I can't figure that out. And therefore, I want an audience with you. And it's in that context of this desire of Job, believing in the justice of God and asking God for an opportunity to make his case, or give me someone who can make the case for me and and reply on your behalf to me so that I know. It's in that context that you have the famous verse in chapter 19 and verse 25. Chapter 19 and verse 25, where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. Now, most of you have heard that. I say it's a famous verse. In Handel's Messiah, this is a major part of Handel's Messiah. And it's sung in one of the major portions of that. I know that my Redeemer lives. And in Handel's Messiah, the Redeemer is the Messiah. It is Jesus who would come later. But here in the context of Job, and I hate to burst bubbles here because this messes up some otherwise really good preaching when you put these things in context. But the word redeemer is the Hebrew word goel. And in this context it means an advocate or one who can lay a hand on both of us, an arbitrator for justice. And Job is, and Job is asking for that. He's looking for that. Whoever that might be. Now, why? Because he believes God is just. He believes what Abraham did when Abraham approached God. And Abraham said this, as God was contemplating the destruction of Sodom, he said, far be it from you, Lord, to treat the righteous and the wicked alike. Because you're just, that would be unjust for you to do that. And then he says to the Lord in the next Next verse, will not the judge of all the earth do right? So this is what Job believes about God. God is a just God and injustice is being done now. And I don't know why. And I'm begging God to tell me why. For us to be able to have a conversation. For me to be able to argue my case before him. And for him to explain to me why this is happening. Now we're going to see next week at the end of the book. Chapters 38 through 41, God does speak, does speak to Job. We'll see the answer, the response that God does, that God does finally give. But this belief in the justice of God means practically for us, friends, that we need not take justice into our own hands. And that's why we're commanded to never seek vengeance. What does the Bible say? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay Now, how can I do that? How can I, when wronged, objectively wrong, not I'm just ticked at you, not I don't like, you know, your attitude, not I don't like what I've, I've been objectively wronged by you or you've been objectively wronged by me. In the midst of that, how can I keep from seeking to take justice into my own hands or seeking vengeance? It's because I believe like Job did. Even if I'm not seeing it at this moment, this God is a just God and the books will be balanced In his time. Now some of you are living at odds with others. Perhaps in your own home. And you're seeking to take out justice on that person. By your anger, by the cold shoulder, by the unwillingness to speak and seek forgiveness and pursue reconciliation. God is in control when life is chaotic. God is just even when you've been wronged. And thirdly, God is there even when he seems distant. God is there even when he seems distant. Job's desire for an audience with God shows that Job sees God as a personal God. I can speak to him. He can speak to me. Rather than this impersonal force that apparently the three friends believe he is. Job knows that God is the most important person in every circumstance and in every relationship. And so he's the one that needs to be invoked and he knows he is there and he's there in a personal way. And so I say in your outline, this means he is in relationship with you. God is there even when he seems distant because he is in a relationship with you. Now, as I said earlier, That may be a negative relationship, it may be a positive relationship, but every single creature in God's world lives in the presence of God. So he's in relationship with you, and of course the right way to have a relationship with God is in this positive relationship that he offers us through Jesus Christ. But he's not a force that's governed by a law of retribution that's somehow external to himself, and therefore he needs to succumb to and submit to. And this relational God is seen throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, from the beginning to the very end. I'm going to put on the screen here a number of verses in which God uses this phrase over and over again. You will be my people or they will be my people and I will be their God. In Leviticus, third book in your Bible, God says, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Through the prophet Jeremiah, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. In Ezekiel 11, they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel again, the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defile themselves anymore with all their sins. They will be my people. And I will be their God. One last time from Ezekiel. I will save them from all their sinful backsliding. And I will cleanse them. They will be my people. And I will be their God. And into your New Testament. this same idea that God made us for relationship with himself. Is carried carried on. 2 Corinthians 6. Quoting some of these passages from the Old Testament. I will live with them and walk among them. And be their God. And they will be my people. The writer of Hebrews, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then in the book of Revelation. In chapter 21, at the end of of history. What God set out to do at the beginning. A people for his very own. A relationship with these people. That are his and they are And he is their God. Revelation 21, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God is there even when he seems distant. He is in relationship with you. Positive or negative, he desires positive. And he is, I say in your outline, available to you. He is available to you. Remember, Job is asking for an audience with God. He believes in this personal God. He believes in this God of justice and this God who will commune with him and speak with him. And so that's what he's asking for. He believes that God is available to him to do this. You need not turn there, but you can if you want. Chapter 13 and verses 14 and 15. Job asks the question, why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? It's chapter 13. And then in verse 15 there, he says, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Now, that's another one of those verses in Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him that so many of us have misquoted over the years. We interpret it this way. Job's going through all of this horrible stuff, and certainly he is. And we interpret it as no matter what he does to me, I will trust in him. That's a wonderful sentiment, and that is something that we should appropriate. But in this context, chapter 13 and verse 14, he's saying, I'm putting myself in jeopardy and I'm taking my life into my hands. I'm asking for God to talk to me. I believe he will. But the truth is he could kill me. But I'm willing to take that risk and take my life into my hands and though, even though he slay me, yet I'm going to hope in him that he will be willing to condescend and to talk to me. And then I will surely defend my ways to his face. This God will not hide himself forever. He will talk to me. Now remember, Job doesn't have a Bible. Job doesn't have a single book of the Bible. And so Job has a somewhat rudimentary understanding of God. He certainly doesn't have the understanding of God that we have, but God explicitly has now told us in Scripture about himself and his availability to us. Acts chapter 17, he is not far from each one of us. The writer of Hebrews draw near to God. And so God is there even when he seems distant. He's in relationship with you. He's available to you. He's in control when life's chaotic, just when you've been wrong, there when he seems distant. And lastly, I say, God is good even when things are bad. And God is being good to Job. We're going to see in the last chapter that God, as he always does, works everything out according to his plan and in his timing. And that's the way the book ends. But as I say, we know more than Job, that God is good even when things are bad, that indeed he desires to bless his people. And hear this, he will bless his people, but he will do it at his time. God will bless his people, but he will do it in his way and at his time. In the meantime, God is still good even when the things are bad. We have examples of this in Scripture. You remember the story of Joseph? And Joseph, who is sold by his brothers into slavery and left probably for dead. And God works through a conspiracy of circumstances using a number of people to bring about years later the situation that Joseph has risen to prominence in Egypt. There is a a famine in the land of Israel. Egypt is the only place that has food due to the ingenuity of, of Joseph. His brothers have to go to Egypt to get food. And who do they have to go to? None other than this brother. That they thought was long gone and probably dead. And at the end of the book of Genesis. Last chapter of the book of Genesis. Chapter 50. As Joseph's identity is revealed to his brothers. They're in fear for their lives. That he's going to have us killed for what we did. And here's what he says famously. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. God was at work in every piece of that. And Joseph had come to realize that and you and I have Joseph's experience that we can learn from. We know more about this than Joseph did as he was going through it than Job certainly did. And you've heard me say before that experience is the best teacher. And then I add, especially when it's somebody else's experience. So why do you got to make the same dumb mistakes other people did? You've got this experience. You intended to harm me. God intended it for good. And in your New Testament, Philippians, which in a few weeks will begin our series series in Philippians. But in that opening chapter, Paul, who wrote it, says to the Christians in Philippi, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. God is good even when things are bad. So friends, hear this. In what we do not understand, cling to what you know. In what you don't know, in what you don't understand, cling to what you know, what you know about God. And you know enough about God to trust his wisdom. In the midst of what seems like chaos, he's in control. In everything that's going on in your life, he is active. And he's producing something good. And that's what chapter 28 of Job is all about. It's an interlude. And it's all about where does wisdom come from? Where can wisdom be found? And then we're going to see this wisdom from God as God speaks in chapters 38 to 41 next week. Here's your take home truth. Then. Faith sees God as he truly is. You see, what I I can see, what you can see is what's going on. And in the midst of what's going on, I then interpret what's going on in light of God, Coram Deo, in the presence of God. And in the ways I react to it and interact with it, I'm saying something about what I believe about God. And in the midst of all the stuff and everything that's going on, faith, that is the word for belief in your New Testament, proper belief in God, sees God as he truly is. Job was able to do that with much less information about God than you have. And God has given us his word, his completed word. He has given us this side of the cross, the sending of his son. God, the son has come. So friends, you know what God is like. So ponder regularly what this God is is like this great God and this good God before the difficulties come. Believe God when you don't know what is happening. Now we're going to pray in just a moment. But I said that all of us are in relationship with God, whether positively or negatively. I desire. We desire as a church that every person here be in positive relationship with God. God. Now, stay with me just for a moment, and then we'll pray. What does that mean? You come into this world in a negative relationship with God. You've got a relationship with God. Everybody does. Everybody knows they're this God, even if they don't acknowledge him, even if they choose not to think about him. But everyone is in relationship with God, but everyone comes into the world in negative relationship with God, and that's because we are sinners by nature and by deed. The moment we come into the world, we are at odds with God. Because we sinned through our first parents, Adam and Eve. They did what we would have done. If you think to yourself, you've done nothing to offend God. God says otherwise. And we come into this world that way. Everyone comes in negative relationship. Here's what God has done. God has come. God, the son, Jesus Christ, the, the God man has come to earth. To make reconciliation between people who deserve God's punishment and God who is absolutely holy and just. And in his perfect life, Jesus lived the life that you and I were supposed to live. And on the cross, he died the death that I deserve and you deserve. And in order for you to have a positive relationship with God, in order for you to be converted, in order for you to be transformed in your standing before God from a negative relationship to positive, You do that one way, you come through the cross of Jesus. And so you've got to be willing to admit that you're a sinner standing in judgment before God. And you've got to be willing to recognize that Jesus is the only answer in his life and in his death. And you repent of your sin. Your sin that manifests itself in different ways for different people, but all of us have it. And your sin that shows up in your life and in your attitude and in your words and you repent of that, Lord, I'm going to follow you now. I'm going to go your way, not my way. That's what repent means. And then you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray when we do. If you have never been moved from that negative relationship to a positive relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you pray in your heart to God, Lord, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that. I believe that Jesus is the payment for my sin. I believe he is God and I give my life to him. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go your way, not my way. I ask you to rescue me. I ask you to save me and I give my life to you. You do that. He begins a change process from the inside out for you. And then for those of you in this room, like me at age 19, for whom that has happened, who has done that, who's asked God to save me, to rescue me, and in whom he has started that change project, (laughs) I still got a long way to go. And you have a long way to go. And in some of what I've said today, you've heard yourself. And in the way you're responding to the circumstances that God has brought into your life. And so when we bow, let's confess our sin to God. But then let's thank God that he's faithful and just to forgive us in Jesus. Let's bow together. Our Lord, we thank you again for meeting with us. We thank you for your word that tells us about you. We thank you for the example of your servant Job, who though he knew little about you compared to all that you have revealed now about yourself in your word and through God the Son, yet he believed rightly about you, that you're a just God, that you're a personal God, that you're a God that is in control of all the circumstances. And Lord, you have shown us without any doubt that you are a good God as well. And Lord, so many of us, even those of us who have relationship with you, we forget that. We fail to put you at the fore of our thinking every day and every moment of every day to consciously live quorum Deo in the presence of God. And so, Lord, we ask you to forgive us for relegating you to the back burner of our lives, as it were. We ask you, Lord, to help us to remember All that you have done for us and that you are central in your universe. That you made us and made this world ultimately for your glory. And so help us to live accordingly. May you be at the fore of our our thinking and the priority of our hearts. Lord, for any who came into this room. Who still have the negative relationship with you with which they were born. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who moves us from sinners who abide under the wrath of God to children who are now in the family of God because of the payment Jesus made. And I pray that your spirit is moving on their hearts and you are drawing them out of the world into yourself and that you are beginning your work of transforming them from the inside out. And so, Lord, we thank you for who you are and for what you have done. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.